Welcome to the Health Fix Podcast, where health junkies get their weekly fix of tips, tools, and techniques to have limitless energy, sharp minds, and fit physiques for life. Hey, health junkies. On this episode of the Health Fix Podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Artovan Asley. He's a board-certified spine surgeon who is on a mission to change the standard of care in spine surgery. In fact, he's even written a book, Corporate Spine. We'll get to that a little bit later. Now, during his first three years of practice, he noticed that there's only one device to help with spine fusions. It's known as a pedicle screw. And he, you know, thought there's got to be a better way. He actually created something known as the laminar plating system, which he won an award in 2015. Sounds great, right? Well, the only problem is that during his research, he discovered the standard of care for spine surgery was based on a single preliminary study that was never completed. Yikes. So, Dr. Artovan is working to change the standard of care based on what he discovered in this research study. But he also wants everyone to know about this because it does impact your care. It impacts if you need a spinal fusion. It impacts your decision to get spine surgery, especially if you've been recommended a fusion. So lots to think about here. Now I will say, as an acupuncturist and a naturopathic doctor, I did see quite a few people when I was in practice day in, day out, who either were going to have fusions or had fusions and things didn't go so well. So, hmm, I can see where Dr. Audubon's coming from. So we have a great conversation in this podcast, lots of information and really stuff that I want you guys to hear because standard of care issues are what are keeping people sick and having problems. We need to really advocate for better standard of care in every industry. But in this case today, we're talking about the standard of care in spine surgery. So let's introduce you to Dr. Artovan Asley. He's going to introduce himself, tell you kind of a little bit of his history. And boy, we have a great podcast for you. All right, let's get on to the podcast. I'm an orthopedically trained spine surgeon. So I went to, uh, I did my undergrad in UC Berkeley. Um, I double majored in physiology and genetics. I went to medical school in New York Medical College. I did my uh, residency in orthopedic surgery in uh uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City. And then I did my fellowship in uh, Brigham Women's and Beth Israel Hospital, part of uh, Harvard University in Boston. I finished my training in 2002. And I, uh, basically after I finished, because I'm from Bay Area, I came and settled in Sacramento area since 2002. I've been in practice since 2002. So I've been in practice for about 20, more than 20 years now. 20 and a half years. Welcome to the Health Fix podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So That's wonderful. He is a spine surgeon, guys. I am I am blown away about all of his knowledge and I get to pick his brain today on all kinds of things. But first and foremost, we were talking before we hit record Artivan on the whole concept of how your book came to fruition while you were in the throes of COVID thinking you were going to die and you were like, I can't die. There's so much I need to say about spine surgery. So give us a little bit of a snippet of how things while you were feeling pretty sick on the brink of death and you were just like, no, I need to tell people 
And I need to tell people now about what is happening in the industry of spine surgery. That's kind of amazing. Um, actually, question that you just asked me. Um, so um, there's so much going on. I really don't know where to stop, but I'll just go to the moment. Actually, I know the moment that uh, um, I felt that urge to live, um, to you know, be actually scared of you know passing away. So when I was practicing, I knew that there were some problems with, um, with what, how we do the surgery. So I wanted to make an invention uh, that works better in elderly population because what we use these days is a screw that gets inserted into the vertebrae. So, and I'm going to come back to all of this because I want to get to the question that you want, but I just want to give a brief background to that. Sure. So, so... What happens like this invention led to another thing, and then that led to another thing, that led to another thing. And I found out that there's a deep conspiracy in the world of spine surgery. And when I found that out, I was ashamed, actually, of my, my profession, to be honest. Um, so somebody, and I didn't know what to do because I went, I wrote letters to, um, uh, FDA. I wrote letters to the United States Senate. Um, I, I and not only that, I would go to these conferences. I would chase down so-called leaders of the field, and they just didn't want to hear it. So somebody told me, "Well, why don't you write a book?" And I said, "Wow, that was great." So uh, I started working on the book, and I wrote the book. I was very um, politically correct, uh, not very abrasive. I wanted to be very gentle in a way. Um, and then I got the COVID and, <laughs> and I almost died. I was in the ICU. I had this, I was four days that I was in the ICU, actually, you know, how you go to hospital and then you start getting better slowly. Well, I was in ICU for about four days. Then I really crashed one day. And, um, I had this moment that I had five people in the room trying to revive me. And I had even moment that I really thought I was dying because they gave me nitroglycerin part of the protocol. And as I was, as I thought I was dying, I even told the nurses that I am dying. And she said, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I should have told you that's nitroglycerin. That's what nitroglycerin does. <laughs> it makes you feel really bad. So I was like, Oh, okay. So I'm not dying. <laughs> awesome. But anyways, <laughs> right. But one thing happened in that moment that, um, my wife doesn't like it, but I, I tell her, I said, you know what? I'm, a, I'm an honest guy. I have to say, you know how when you're dying, you think about your family. You think about you have a picture of your wife and kids and all that stuff. When I had that, but most of all, what I had in my head is that, oh, my God, these guys are going to get away with it. Because I'm the only guy I knows, you know, that has discovered what is actually going on, even though there's been two, maybe three investigations by United States Senate that they found a lot of problems that we will discuss later. They couldn't tell what was going on. They just couldn't figure out what was going on. It wasn't until I was inventing this other device that I went back and I found out this conspiracy that I had to spend three years to figure out the answer that I found out what was going on. So there was a reason. It's not just I kind of thought about some you know, problem and solved it. It all happened over a period of five to six years. But you're right. I mean, this 
was going on when I got the COVID. And then I was thinking, oh my God, these guys are going to get away with it. So after I got out of the hospital, it took me about two months to get better and took me a year to really recover from COVID. I had a lot of residuals. And then I rewrote the whole book and I named names. (laughs) (laughs) So that COVID changed everything for me. You know, in a way, it kind of made me brave. You know, I said, I almost died, you know, so, hey. Uh, they cannot do worse. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my uh, goodness! Right. So, yeah. Doctor Ardovan, so you you went through this experience. You were already trying to kind of expose what was going on in spine surgery. You go through COVID. You come back out. You go. Okay, I'm going to write this book, and and now, you know, that's of course, guys, why I have him here. I want him to talk a little bit about spine surgery as a whole, because obviously many of you who have listened to this podcast for a long time know that I'm an acupuncturist, know that I see folks that have either had surgeries or had surgeries that didn't do so well. Now they're back trying to figure out how to get rid of their pain again. And, you know, I'm not going to, and I'm sure you've heard of this too, Dr. Ardovan, that many people will say, oh, spine surgery. Yeah. The, the possibility of having good successes is, is pretty low. And, and people will go into it kind of nervous. And I saw in your book, you mentioned quite a different, you know, few things about people begging you to get rid of their pain, but then also the same thing going, I'm not really sure what is going to be the right option for them. So would you mind sharing a little bit about the spine in, and and the discs and, and what can kind of go wrong more typically for people? Because I know there's a lot of different things, but maybe the disc, the the actual vertebrae kind of give us a breakdown of what's most commonly seen that could set someone up for needing a spine surgery. Sure. Um, Now I want to kind of say that, you know, this is uh, what I'm about to say. This is what happens in my practice. I cannot tell you that all the spine surgeons practice this way. I'm a little bit different than my colleagues. Um, I don't want to say they're closed-minded, but I was like that too. You know, I was trained uh, when I went through my training. Uh, I was trained that oh, we have all the answers and nobody else does. And it took me a few years to realize that no, we really don't have the answer either. Uh, you know, we do to some extent, but sometimes we don't. So I'm different uh, than the rest of my colleagues. So um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, reason for that is that uh, I believe in everything I tell my patients. Uh, they come to me and they say, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? I'm like, Absolutely. As long as they help you, that's all we care. I just want to get you better. If you're better, we're good. If you don't get better, then hey, you know, you tried it. But overall, let's start from the beginning. So spine is a mechanical device. Um, it's a, basically a structure that holds us upright and protects the nerves. So it has two functions. So it's a bunch of bones that are stacked up on top of each other, separated by this cushion, cartilage, we call it disc. We don't truly understand how this disc is innervated, how it causes pain. Um, but we know that its integrity is important. It's like a tire. Uh, if you put a nail in the tire, that tire is going to go flat, the car is going to come down, and it's not going to function well. 
The same thing can happen with a disc. If there's an injury, let's say you did something, fell off a horse, you know, um, something like that, got into a car accident. If there's an injury to the rim of that disc, that gelatinous stuff in the middle can seep out. Now, here comes the very complex concept. Just because there's an injury, it doesn't equal to pain. You got to have the injury plus inflammation. We know it's the inflammation that causes the pain. And that's why people have good days and bad days. You know, if you, uh, the MRIs don't change, the, 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 the damage doesn't heal itself and then goes bad again. No, um, the damage is there, but you do some, you're good, you do something, then you're bad. You know, it's an inflamed. Then you rest, the inflammation goes down, you're good again until you repeat the cycle again by injuring. Um, so, we know that's inflammation. Now, why uh, some people get injury plus inflammation, uh, we don't know. Some people actually get the injury and they don't get the inflammation. So even though they have the injury, they don't have pain. Uh, we know that. We've followed MRIs. Um, now, before I go further, I want to explain this to the audience. So this is a very important concept. The science of spine surgery is a very new science. We really didn't start seeing these discs, understanding what they are made of and what happens to them until the invention of MRI. Now, MRI first became available in mid-80s. Well, the first MRIs were not that good, and of course, it wasn't everywhere. So it took another, let's say, decade, 1995, mid-90s, that decent quality MRIs was kind of spread over the United States. Like, you go to a hospital, and they would have an MRI. So if you think about since 1995 till now, really haven't had a chance to really understand this situation. So somehow I want my patients to cut me a break, cut us a break <laughs> so, to understand that, hey, we're working on this and we really haven't had a chance to figure this out. It's a very complex problem, but we are, we are working on it. So that's the thing. Now, go back to the spine. As we discussed, there's a bunch of bones that are stacked up on top of each other, separated by this cushion. And you have to have injury, and on, and on top of that, inflammation to get pain. Uh, now, uh, the statement I'm about to tell you, I might change my mind. You know, every five, 10 years, I kind of uh, change my position in this statement I'm about to say. Initially, when I started my practice, I said, wow, you know, spine is a bunch of moving parts. You have the muscles, you have the facet joints, you have the disc, you have all these things that can go wrong. And anything that can go wrong could go wrong. Therefore, you can have a lot of reason why you have pain in the back. It's not just one condition. But after 20 years of practice, I'm going, to, going back to the concept that it's the disc that gets injured. Yeah, It seems that that's the culprit or the main culprit that we can say and even in situations that patient has pain but their disc is looking healthy on the MRI I think it's just that the situation the MRI hasn't been able to pick up the problem um, I have patients that and that's part of my book that I had patients that they complained to me for a long time and I would get the MRIs and they were negative and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. I don't know why you're having pain. And then it wasn't until they came back two or three years later and we repeated the MRI. And now we could see, aha, oh, now I see. Because what we think is this. 
When you have an injury to the disc, this injury can have different size. So you have injury that is large, and then you can see all this gelatin stuff just spilling out with a large herniation. Or you can have a just a little crack uh, that is not very big, and that gelatin stuff, it takes it years for it to um, deflate and kind of seep out. Problem is that size of this injury does not correlate to how much pain you're having. It doesn't correlate how much inflammation you're going to end up. Because one of the questions that every patient comes to my office and asks me is, well, there are two questions. One is, how bad does it look? And two, what's going to happen to me? Well, I can tell you that we know this for sure, that in my world, world of spine surgery, looks don't matter. You can, I have patients that they have horrible looking discs, bone on bone, all the discs are gone. And they're like, hmm, I'm fine. You know, I have a little, little tightness here, but I'm good. Then I have patients that they're very young, healthy. I look at their MRI, they have one little tear corner of the disc and they're like, <gasps> they can't even breathe normal. They're in so much pain. So that is evidence that actually the pain is not just caused by the damage, but actually the inflammation. And the other question, of course, is what's going to happen to me? And that's why I always tell my patients, I have no idea. And that's what makes spine surgery, my job, frustrating and at the same time interesting. Frustrating because I can't answer my patients' questions. I tell them, whatever scenario you can think of happening, I've seen it happen. I have patients that they come in, I do one injection or get some physical therapy, they get better. I never see them again. I have patients that nothing works. I end up doing surgery on them. And I have patients that I, unfortunately, once in a while, uh, not very often, I do the surgery and they're not better. Now I got to send them to a uh, pain specialist. And, you know, that, and that's just a difficult, very, very difficult situation. So... That's the first, but at the same time, well, it makes my job interesting. You know, I never get bored. I have office, you know, three times a week, uh, sometimes four times a week. And uh, every time I come to office, even when I get patients that they have MRIs looking just like the patient that I saw the day before, but the presentation is completely different. So I never get bored. So that's a good part of being a spine surgeon. Oh my goodness. So, right, right. So, biggest question that patients ask me so, um, how do you make the decision for surgery? How do you evaluate the patient? Um, different surgeons have different setups. Some surgeons use physician's assistants. A lot of my colleagues, friends use physician's assistants. So, uh, or like some people practice in a setting like Kaiser. You know, for example, if I tell you in Kaiser, the patient's being seen by the primary care physician, then they get referred to physical therapy, then they have physical therapy, then uh, they get referred to pain management because, okay, the treatment of back pain falls into three stages. The first stage is what we call manipulative treatments. The whole idea is to manipulate the body with one technique towards the other, try to get them better. In that category, you have chiropractic care, physical therapy, acupuncture, massage, you know, it's a whole world. Mm -hmm. Second stage are therapeutic injections. And most of them are steroid injections to decrease the inflammation. Last and third step is surgery. So let's say you practice in a uh, setting of a medical group uh, like Kaiser. So this patient by primary care physician is being sent to physical therapy. If they're better, good. If they're not, 
then they get to pain management. And if they help them, great. If they don't, uh, they have the injections, they're not better, then they get referred to a surgeon. Then the surgeon has to decide um, if they can help them or not. I have a little bit different practice. I like to see my patients earlier so I can evaluate them, you know, see the patient from earlier stages as opposed to later stages. But it, beginning stage of treating a patient is like a, a cookie cutter type of a treatment, therapy, injections, then you got to decide surgery or not. Now, let's talk about surgery. How a patient become a surgical candidate? To become a surgical candidate, two things needs to happen. One, a patient that has had whatever is available to them short of surgery and they didn't get better. Two, a surgeon that can identify what the problem is in the MRI, therefore would be confident that they can fix that physical problem in them leading to um, pain relief. Um, having said that, so what I'm trying to tell you is that, shall I do surgery? Shall I not do surgery? Uh, if I do so, when do I do surgery? These are all patients' decisions because I cannot look at those MRIs and say how much pain they're in or what's going to happen to them. So I tell my patients, I said, if you think you don't need surgery, that means you don't need surgery. If you've come to a point that you can't live like this, that's when we do surgery. And as I said, different Doctors practice different rate, but the way I practice my practice is that I tell the patient, I said, if you're on the, on the fence, surgery is not for you. People who are questioning, shall I have surgery or no, that's, you're not, surgery is not for you. People who I do surgery, they beg me to do surgery on them tomorrow. They're in so much pain. They have tried everything. Um, that's why sometimes I get this. Uh, question like, do you believe, uh, shall I do surgery or shall I do therapy? Shall I do surgery? Shall I do chiropractic care? And to be honest, after 20 years of practice, I don't know why that question shouldn't exist. Because I tell my patients, of course, get the therapy. Of course, get those uh, treatments that are much less invasive. If it works for you, absolutely. But if you do those things and you think that you still can't live your life with the amount of pain that that's when we have to do surgery and what comes after it is what it is. You know, sometimes I tell my, and that depends on how much pain they're suffering. Sometimes I tell my patients, look, I can look at the MRI and I tell you what could be the problem because this is the situation. As I discussed earlier, it's not just the damage that causes the pain. It's the damage plus inflammation and you cannot see the inflammation. That's why, we can't tell you that we don't have a test or study that tells us exactly where the pain is coming from. We don't. Uh, I'll give you an example. I had a patient about eight years ago. She was a nurse at the hospital, at my own hospital, Sutter Roosevelt. She came to me. She had a very bad herniated disc at the level of C5-6 in the neck, in the cervical spine. I told her, oh, don't worry, no problem, I'll fix you. I mean, not just like that. You know, I had, you know, I was, you know, I told him all the risks and stuff, you know. But I had this kind of a cavalier attitude. Oh, yeah, I'll fix you, no problem. I did the surgery at C5 and she didn't get better. I was like, ooh, wait, oh, what do I do now? Um, so I sent her to second opinion myself, three other surgeons, and she stuck with me. And all the surgeons said, 
Dr. Adley did the right surgery. Sorry, you're not better. We don't know what's going on. This is it. So after a year, I told her, I said, there is a disc below it between six and a seven, and there's a little tear in there. It's nothing significant. It can be the disc below, but I don't want to talk about another surgery. If I do that surgery, you're not better. Now you've had two surgeries. You still have the pain. I can't live with myself. Um, but that could be a problem. You need to make that decision. She came to me and said, I can't live like this. I'm going to take my chances. And I did the surgery at C67 and all the pain went away. So this is a very well-known fact in the world of spine surgery that you can have two discs next to each other. One of them is horrible. The other one look, doesn't look bad at all. And yeah. it's the one that doesn't look bad at all is the disc that's uh, really hurting the patient. And the problem is this. As spine surgeons, we don't want to just do this huge surgery. We don't want to just fix everything that you know uh, doesn't look good to us. So we try to do the least. So we tend to operate on the worst looking disc. But unfortunately, once in a while, and most of the times it is the worst looking disc is the problem, but sometimes the worst looking disc is not the problem. And that's when the patient comes back and say, I'm not better. And in those situations, I have to start all over again. You know, And sometimes if you are in a different practice, then you get uh, kicked into pain management and that's it. You know, Nobody wants to touch you and you're in pain for the rest of your life. So it's not really the surgery's fault. It's just like we don't have a study to tell us exactly where the pain is coming from. And the problem with that is that patients, when we do surgery, patients sleep. It's not like you're massaging somebody and they tell you, oh, that's it. You got it. That's the spot. You know, <laughs> right. uh, they're asleep. So you do the surgery, uh, patient wakes up and they either tell you they're better and everybody's happy or they'll tell you, no, I still have I'm there now. Um, you know, uh, I just want to let people understand that mm-hmm. when we do surgery and patient is not better, it's not like, well, sorry, sucks for you. You know, have a nice life. Uh, we're not like that. I mean, when this happens in my practice, I just want earth to open up and swallow me. I mean, there's just really nothing worse than doing something that invasive to somebody. And they say it was for nothing. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, do I get those patients? Absolutely. I'm no, uh, I'm no different than other surgeons. You know, that's just what I have to work with, basically. Um, so those are the shortcomings that we have in the world of spine surgery. And that's one of the things that I wanted to convey to patients, public people, that what we can, what we cannot do. Because you're right, um, I get this all the time. You know, patients come in and they, as soon as I talk about surgery, they just, they freak out and their eyes open up, you know, they get scared. And, um, and uh, reputation of spine surgery really hasn't changed within the last 10, 20 years. And now, now that I know the conspiracy, now I kind of know in a way why, um, in the, to, to some extent. I don't want to blame the whole thing on that, but to some extent. Um, but, you know, when my patients come to me and say, we were told by somebody that don't get the surgery, surgeon talks about surgery, and I tell them, you don't understand. I... I'm the one telling you that if you can avoid surgery, don't get the surgery. You know, I'm the one to tell you. Yeah. But if you cannot live like that, that's when we have to do the surgery. And what comes after it is what it is. And that's probably one of the reasons I've never been sued by anybody, you know, because I don't promote surgery. I don't talk my patients into surgery. It's 
purely their decision. They make the decision. They come to me and say they want to proceed with that or not. And and I unfortunately I tell them I can do a good carpentry, but what comes after, you know, uh, I really don't have much uh, much control over it. Uh, but there's another aspect that I want my patients to understand, and this is very important. Uh, in my book, uh, I talked about this conspiracy and all that stuff, but I didn't want my book to be just a complaint kind of a uh, book that just complain about things. I wanted to convey 20 years of what I've learned in 20 years of spine surgery to my patients so they would understand what we have available to us and what we don't. Because I really think spine surgeons haven't done themselves a favor to try to educate public what we have available for us and what, what we can, what we cannot do. One of the concepts I talk about, and I always tell my patients is this. I divide my patients into two categories, simple and complex. Simple if they have one or two discs that are bad. Complex if they have three or more discs that are bad when you look in the MRIs. Why? Because if they have one or two discs that are bad, the problem is a localized problem. These are the patients that they do very well with surgery. The results are good. They're happy, we're happy, and wonderful. However, once you have three or more discs, these are, these are the patients that they have a regional problem. You know, it's not just the local. In this situation, uh, it's too much to ask of surgery to fix everything. Uh, and in this situation, I have to tell the patients, look, I might do a big surgery for you, and you might not get better, but there's a big um, benefit of the surgery that you're not going to see and you're, nobody's going to talk about, which is stopping you from getting worse. Mm-hmm. Now, that is something that no surgeon takes the time to explain to the patients that, you know, look, there's another aspect that nobody talks about, which is stabilizing the area. And that's something that they need to understand as well. So, um, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting because beginning of my practice, when I got out of my training, I was trained to do these big, huge surgeries, screws, rods, you know, both sides, front, back, back, front. Um, So when I started my practice, uh, I would see some surgeons, older surgeons, established surgeons, that they're doing these smaller surgeries. And I would tell myself, "Uh uh-huh, they're not well-trained. Man, they should go back to training. You know, they don't know how to do big surgeries. And now 20 years later, I find myself in the same spot (laughs) that I want to do smaller and smaller surgery because I've seen what the big surgeries do to the patient. So I tell my patient, I said, if you have one or two discs that are bad, I can help you uh, if you decide. But if they have three or more, I tell them, do whatever you can. Don't do the surgery. But if it comes to a point you can't live like that, you come to me, I'm not going to deny you a surgery that can potentially help you. But you need to understand what yourself, what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, multiple layers. One is that some people get better. Some people, even without surgery, over time, the inflammation kind of burns stuff out and they get better. We just don't know who, we don't know when, we don't know why. Uh, but some people do get better even without any treatment. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, it's very difficult to say what would be their functional outcome after a big surgery. Some people, let's say, do three, four level fusion. Um, they can go back to their jobs. You know, if they have 
you know, reasonable, like accountants or realtors or so, uh, you know, but sometimes when you do those big surgeries, you knock them out, you know, you knock them off their uh, path. So those are the patients that after a big time surgery, then you tell them you need to uh, retire, you know, uh, you need to retire and, and you got to protect your back for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, so those are the things that I've explained in my book. So patients would understand what we go through as spine surgeons to elect, decide surgery or no surgery. And eventually, the decision for surgery or no surgery, if the indication is pain, which about 97% of my surgeries are, uh, eventually is the patient's decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. It makes sense. I'm curious. Do you ever recommend folks to kind of go on a low inflammation diet, kind of take out alcohol, take out things that may be inflaming them to see if by any chance that may help them, like either independent of doing a surgery or before or after a surgery and, and kind of test that? You know, I've thought about those things. It's just the problem is that when I see the patient, I have to go over so many things. I just don't have time to put the diet into that and stuff. And talk about diets and all that stuff is such a personalized thing. I mean, uh, I tell them, you got to do this. You got Like I ask a lot of my patients, do you smoke? Or uh, if the answer, you have to, you know, or a lot of my patients are, you know, um, obese. Uh, the problem is that by the time patient has made it to me, they've already thought about these. They've already you know, talk to somebody about that. And part of my book, uh, I talk about that, how difficult it is to talk about weight mm -hmm. uh, because it's not the first time they've figured it out. I'm not the first person saying this. They've gone through it. They've, you know, probably, in, God, I was talking to one of my office managers. She was, she was telling me that, you know, this is a very difficult situation. These people might have been called names or maybe, maybe they might be, you know, uh, make fun of or something like that. You know, it's a very uh, sensitive issue. Uh, and I don't want to keep talking about that. And they probably tried different things and, uh, and they failed. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that uh, people look at the heavy people, they think like, oh, she just likes to eat, you know, stop eating, come on. But it's not like that. It's not that complex. Uh, it is a thermostat in your brain that sets, you know, uh, when to stop eat or, you know, uh, what I'm trying to tell you is that even the desire to eat is a part of metabolic cascade. You know, it's not something that you just decided that you want to become heavy. You know, that's the look I'm going for, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so unfortunately, it's a, it's a difficult situation. But I do talk to my patients that, you know, you got to lose weight, you got to um, get a nice diet. But overall, this is what I tell my patients about diet. I tell them that you got to find something that you like yourself. If I tell you a diet, you do that, you don't like it, you're not going to do it. So okay. you have to look around. You got to find something that you like and is good for you. And that's that way you can continue doing that. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's something that I, you know, I think we all kind of struggle with in the medical field of trying to figure out how to help folks in that department. It's a 
Yeah, a lot of time and effort going into that department. Well, well, <laughs> well, this, the, the, well this is it. You know, it's like it is the chicken first or the egg first. You know, because this is the situation. Um, when you know, when I finished my training, I was uh, trained that do not operate on uh, depressed people. If they're depressed, they're not going to do well. Well, when I started my practice, I'm like, well, everybody's depressed. Who? How? You're not. How you're not going to be depressed if you have like a knife stuck in your back and have a severe back pain, you know? Yeah. And the problem is that when you have, uh, when you have pain, you have depression. It's very hard to focus on your diet. I mean, that's just so hard. When you're normal, you don't have pain. You have a regular life. That's hard enough to. Uh, focus on your diet and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This I'm going to stick to that. But when you're suffering your, from pain, uh, your focus is completely diverted. You know, it's, it's just so hard uh, to become disciplined in terms of controlling diet or so. So uh, it's a, it's a, you, you enter into this vicious cycle uh, that's just very difficult to get out of. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The pain hijacks everything and probably kind of creates a vicious cycle with the vagus nerve of reinflammation, depending on how much, you know, the pain in the brain and pain and brain cycle, like you're saying. Correct. Correct. And one of the things I talk about is that problem with back pain is that you're not sick. So people look at you and like, what's up yeah. with you? No, are you lazy? You don't want to do it? What, what, what's going on with you? You know, um, so I always tell my patients that, you know, it's good to bring your significant other to the visit. So your significant other can see the MRI and see what's the problem with you. Because back and neck issue, it, it wrecks marriages. It wrecks relationships, you know. So I always tell them, but sometimes I've tell, you know, told people, I said, next time I want you to bring your wife <laughs> or her husband. So I want them to see this because you gotta, I know you're going to have problems. You know, with with this, you know, so that's very important sometimes. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, the invisible illnesses are are tough. They are absolutely tough, and pain, I think, is one of those. I mean, I think you know, like you even said, we we haven't quite figured out pain per se, especially in the spinal nerves and things of that nature. Now, I'd love to get into talking about the different devices and the device companies. And kind of even going into your own laminar plating system and, and talking about that, because I think a lot of people see, you know, like you were saying, there's not a lot of info, but they might catch like a YouTube video on the cool devices from different companies and think, can I have that put in my back, you know, or even the, the nervous, the stimulators, though, I get asked all the time by patients, well, can you just refer me for someone to put in a stimulator? And I'm like, a little more complicated than that. Can you speak to to some of these devices and and I mean I'll let you take take it wherever you want to go in in that department. Well, them. this is the, well, I mean what you just asked. That's exactly the reason I wrote this book. We don't know what to do. We I, I mean mm -hmm. I just don't know what to do because this is the situation. Uh, uh, I, I showed you before this uh, session that, uh, or I'll talk to the audience, um, mm -hmm. and I'm not the only one that I'm complaining about this. I walked into my room, to my office, November of 2020. So I had the journal of spine. Uh, I'm I have a membership to it. So it's the issue, November 1st, 2020 of spine journal. And I'm going to show it to whoever, if somebody watches in the YouTube. And... 
and the first article caught my attention. And this is the uh, t- this is the title of the first, the very first article. Undisclosed conflict of interest is prevalent in spine literature. So that's our journal saying that our literature is tainted. And this is what happens. A company comes up with a product. Then they approach uh, a surgeon, which is always a famous surgeon. They're not going to find somebody in a small town. They go to a very important institution, Harvard, John, whatever. And unfortunately, then that surgeon that becomes consultant start writing papers that are favorable to that uh, product. Then we all start using it. Then 10 years later, we find out that the product didn't work and nobody says anything. And that's what I've said in my book that, no, you got to come back here. What is this you published here? <laughs> nobody, I mean, it's just so bad. We just don't know what to tell our patients. Um, between 2000 and 2010, there was a big explosion of new products coming out. And I was actually part of it. I was actually one of the known guys in Sacramento area that if you have a new product, Dr. Asley is the guy to go to. Um, and unfortunately, 95 plus percent of those new devices that came out, it turned out that uh, they all disappeared. Uh, so, so and, and that has a lot to do with, uh, unfortunately, integrity of people who are doing the studies. Uh, this, is the, this is the biggest problem that I see. To become an FDA approved, okay, the FDA asks the company that they have to bring papers and study that shows that their stuff works. Well, guess what? They're gonna go find somebody, they're not gonna find somebody that's gonna publish papers that your, your product is not good, you know? Right. <laughs> but just, Makes sense. You know, so, yeah, so they're gonna go find somebody and somehow they're gonna have some studies that, oh, product works great. So when somebody says, and that's what I've learned over like years, that says FDA approved, FDA cannot say that this works because it, you know, they cannot do their own studies. They, they don't have labs and people of university that are testing these things. All the FDA can say is that it's not harmful. That's the only thing that FDA can say. Does it work or it doesn't work? It's work is left for a university or a research center to do the research and figure out uh, if it works or not. Uh, and if you leave it to uh, the literature, that are the, the, the source is the company itself. I can tell you right now, uh, you know, I mean, these days, all these companies come to me and they say, oh, we have these papers showing, you know, this works. And I'm like, yeah, right, right. I'm sure, I'm sure it does. <laughs> you know, I've just gotten so dejected by this thing, you know, and, and there's no, there's no repercussion. You know, you can publish whatever and say, well, that was my data. Nobody can say that you uh, you just fudge the number or, you know, just kind of play with number. And uh, you plugged in that uh, number and it says, yeah, it works great. So nobody brings a patient, you know, bring the research. This is the problem. These corporations are run by CEOs. The CEO has one goal only one and one goal to make money for that company. So they will push that product into the market. That's all, uh, with 
any means. They will go through anything if they have to even buy the surgeon, buy the doctor, you know. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get into the details of that, you know, whatever. But but they'll do this just so when later on we find out the stuff didn't work, that CEO is gone. He's had his $100 million. He's in the south of France in the villa. And nobody touches him. Nobody asks him a question like, come back here. What is this you did? You know, because no CEO is going to say, wait, let's take our time. <laughs> let's, let's do it right. <laughs> no, nobody does that. You know, so I really think we should hold these CEOs. We got to make an example of you, these people to say, look what you did. You can't do that bad. I mean, I understand to bring a product into the market. That's not what I'm saying. I think that the product should come to the market soon. But then as soon as it comes to the market, we have to look at it critically to see if it works or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to give a wrong impression that, oh, we got to test it thoroughly and then bring it to You can't do that. That's just, you know, that just delays things. I think we should bring it to the market, but... We should look at it with a critical eye from the beginning and evaluate it, not like 10 years down the road, like, like immediately with a year or two uh, of coming to the market that is it working or not. So that's the best way, because I've thought about this quite a bit. What's the best way, you know? Um, so, yeah, so it is, it is complex. It is. I mean, and and you have to try things out, right? And, and I can respect that. You have to have a trial of different things and you have to use it in a, in vivo. So in life situation, not just on rats or, you know, things of that nature. And I, I think, you know, we have to try to, unfortunately, some people are sacrificed. Let's call it what it is for learning, you know, what is going to happen with certain things. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in particular is the pedicle screw situation. Correct. And Correct. this is something that I've run into in my practice with certain patients. And I mean, the amount of pain and the amount of different issues that I've seen in general from the pedicle screws is, is such, it's incredible. So I'm going to have you take it over and kind of explain to folks what a pedicle screw is going into the vertebrae and how how it all plays out and sure so pedicle screw so pedicle screw is a large screw that gets inserted from back to front through this column of bone we call it pedicles into the vertebral into the body of the backbone vertebral bone and each screw has a tulip on top that can accept a rod so if let's say you want to fuse five vertebrae together you put five on each side and you put it one on each side uh, five and then connect them with a rod and that immobilizes the area. Why? Well, um, let's start from the beginning. So one of the uh, surgeries that we had right around 70s, 60s, 70s was a fusion surgery. Let's say the cushion that we discussed, the disc between the two bones is worn out and causing pain. So we did the surgery to fuse the two bones together to eliminate the motion and then eliminating pain. So that disc is not getting banged up anymore and therefore it's not hurting. So we started doing these surgeries and the surgery is basically you put some bone graft between the two vertebrae, hoping that that bone graft will turn into a solid bone. Well, a good chunk of the time that didn't happen, like a one out of four and patient ended up in a not what we call non-union. Well, in this case, pain came back even worse. So to increase the fusion rate, so these bones heal better, we had learned from general orthopedic surgery that 
we could heal the fractures by immobilizing it. We call it AO technique, A, A, capital A and capital O, AO technique, which is basically a rigid fixation of the fracture ends together so they can heal together with screws and plates. Right around 1985 or so, two surgeons from France, they figured out to actually put a large screw into the vertebral body and uh, hold the two, immobilize the two vertebrae together. Um, it got presented in 1985, and then like by 1990s, like early 90s, this, this use of these screws had become almost standard of care. It was just too cough, basically. The orthopedic spine surgeons were like, this is what we've been waiting for. Well, the problem is that initially there were significant amount of bad outcomes. At some point, there were 7,000 lawsuits against the manufacturer, a company called Medtronic. They even sued the doctors. They sued American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and North American Spine Society. So 500 lawsuits against the doctor, not the doctor, but the institutions of surgeons. Right around this time, like in 1993, a surgeon called Dr. Zedeblik published a paper in 1993 that said these screws work beautifully. Uh, they are working amazing. They're increasing fusion rate to 90 plus percent. Whoever got these screws did so much better and they're great. So when that paper came out, uh, we started using these screws and the use of these screws became standard of care to even right now. But so by 2016, uh, when I started uh, to come up with an uh, alternative because these screws get incited into the bone and inside bone is a, what we call cancellous spongy bone. The outside bone, it's like vertebral bone is like a shoebox. The outside, the shell is a cortical strong bone, but the inside is a spongy weak bone. So when you put the screw in it, well, as you age, especially in women, you know, 60 plus, that bone inside bone just disappears. So these screws keep pulling out like, like, a, hot, like a hot knife to the butter. So I come up with an alternative device. My device was a flat plate that sat against the lamina. Lamina is the roof of the canal. It's a cortical bone and uses composite straps to wrap around the lamina and like a zip tie, you tension it. So it holds onto the vertebrae without penetrating the bone. But that's not the important thing. Well, my, by the way, my invention won the Innovation Showcase in Congress of Neurological Surgeons in 2015. So it got presented to the world of neurosurgery. But when I did that, I had some problems with that. I said, let me look at see what the, what's happening in the screw. Do they have the same problem? Or if they don't have that, get away with that. Well, I found out the screws have the same problem too, but nobody's talking about it. I said, well, let's dig into the uh, literature, see what's going on. And that's when I found out all these controversy and my jaw dropped. This is what happened. When Dr. Zedelic published that paper in 1993, then between 1997 and 2003, five, no, six independent multinational multi-author papers came out that said these screws don't work. I was like, wait, what is going on here? Uh, what's happening? You know, let, let me look back at Dr. Zedelic's paper, see what's going on. And the first thing that I found out, it just shocking. Like every time I thought I've seen the worst of it, it got 10 times worse. When Dr. Zedeblik published that paper, he published it as a preliminary report. 
I spent two or three years to look for the final report. I couldn't find it. So eventually mm. I talked to one of the professors and he said, oh, yeah, that study was never finished. It was abandoned in the middle. Oh, I was wow. like, what? <laughs> if you Google right now Zedeblik spine fusion, you will see this paper that was published in 1993 has been referenced by 1,000, as of yesterday, 1,122 articles. This paper is a is a most referenced paper in the entire world of spine surgery. Everything that we do today tracks back to that paper. And it was an abandoned paper. It was never finished. Mm. I mean, one page in my book, I, I, I criticize it. Of thousands of these authors, nobody ever asked the question, where's the final report? And then it gets worse. So he published the paper in 1993. By 1996, as the lawsuits against the company that was disappearing because of his paper, he started getting paid from Medtronic. By 2003, he had gotten paid $34 million. Wait, you think that's bad? No, it gets 10 times worse. Then the same company, Medtronic, put him in charge of another important study called BMP, bone morphogenic protein. It's a bone graft substitute. This time he got caught falsifying his results. By who? By United States Senate. It was the investigation by United States Senate. It's the United States Senate came to the conclusion that that paper that he published in 2004, it was not written by him, it was written by the company. Wow. Right. So this is what we have. This is literally what we have as an evidence of what we do today in the entire world of science. So I have to ask myself, what is going on? Are we crooks? Are we like you become a spine surgeon, you become a crook? What, what, what's going on? I have to, I mean, what's going on? I have to answer this. So I spent three years looking for the answer. And I think I found it. And this is how it goes. We became orthopedic surgeons first. We do five years of orthopedic surgery. Then do, we do one year, just one year of spine surgery, and we call ourselves spine surgeons. Well, what happens is that after we became orthopedic surgeons, we, we applied the same knowledge that we learned in orthopedic surgery, and we applied that concept to spine surgery. And I'm here to tell you that we should have never done that. Spine surgery is a complex field. Spine surgery was never meant to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. There is nothing, nothing you learn in orthopedic surgery that's going to make you a better spine surgeon. And I'll give you an example. The concept of rigid fixation, that's, this is one example. There are so many. The concept of rigid fixation that I explained earlier, you know, with the plates and screws, works in the extremity in arms and leg for one important reason. If you have a construct, if you have a screws in place, you have fixed this bone, that's not, you know, you're kind of suspicious. You're like, well, it's the, you know, I want to protect it. You can eliminate gravity. You put the patient on crutches or you put the patient in a sling. So you eliminate gravity. So that construct that you've done doesn't get stressed. You can't do that to spine. You cannot suspend the patient in the air, you know. So the second the patient gets up from bed, from from bed, that your construct, your screws and rods are under stress. So what you have to do, I call it reactive rigid fixation. So you have, a, you have to have a construct that can absorb the stress and can flex, not 
flexible device, but can flex and dissipate this energy. So it, the screws doesn't cut out and, you know, just, just the whole thing fails and back out. The, whole, the same concept is when you build a high rise in San Francisco, an earthquake proof place. You don't make it stiff. You put them on rollers, you put it, you know, things so it can swing. And when the earthquake comes in, it doesn't just crumble and fall down. Uh, so uh, there's a there's a big saying. Uh, I was I was in Marine Headlands uh, for my kids, 11 year old daughter. Uh, it was a school trip, and there was a, a camp supervisor uh, was trying to explain the bridge and all that stuff. And she was saying that, remember, kids, flexible is stronger. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I wrote a whole book about this. <laughs> You're like, future fine spine surgeon right here. Let's get her in. <laughs> it's just it's just crazy. So what, what, I, what I want, so, okay, so Dr. Azzi, what do you want to happen? This is what I want to happen. This is what it should happen. Whatever you learned in orthopedic surgery, you got to unlearn. As a matter of fact, spine surgery should be its own specialty. You should unlearn what you learned in orthopedic surgery and then relearn. It's like going from Newtonian physics to quantum physics. If you want to build a house on Earth, you can use Newtonian physics. But if you want to shoot a, a you know, rocket to moon, you have to use quantum physics. Or if you want to build a laser, you got to use quantum physics. So it's totally unrelated. they got to be treated as a totally special. And spices should be its own special, not one year. You know, you need at least like six or seven years, you know, definitely more than one year uh, to become, to call yourself a spine surgeon, basically. So that needs to happen. Okay. Okay. I like, I like where you're headed with this. I think it's, you know, I think for a lot of people, just because, I mean, you've seen it, I, I think it's especially touching in your book, how you're talking about being a doctor in a small practice. And, and being in a small, not small practice, a small town and having, seeing people outside at the, you know, hardware store or whatnot, it's, you know, there's integrity there, but there's also integrity and also calling to action for other spine surgeons to, to step up and, and change the profession. How, how are you doing on recruiting? Um, well, Whoever has read the book, they just, I mean, look, this is simple stuff. A couple of my, I, I explained this to a couple of my friends and they said, this is basic fifth grade physics. I'm like, well, it's a fifth grade physics after I deciphered it. But before that, it was super complex. Mm -hmm. So look, I am not, let, let me explain to you what I'm up against. You yeah. got to hear this story. This is actually, it's amazing. I, in 2016, I was in North American Spine Society. At that time, I didn't know what I know now. You know, I was just starting to ask questions. So I got up in front of like 1,000 spine surgeons and I said, we have all these papers that says the screws don't work. So what are we doing? And then the doctors, and I didn't want to get in a fight because every time I questioned the screws, I swear to God, it's like I'm spitting their face or it's like <laughs> something like sacrilegious. I mean, they want to just, they just tear me apart, you know? And they don't want to listen to it. So the people on the panel said, well, we did our studies later on and we saw that they worked really well. So I didn't want to fight them. I said, you know, okay, well, why didn't you publish it? You know, I, I, I said, okay, well, I sat down. Anyways, 20 minutes later, I was in line to get coffee. So as I'm getting coffee, there's an established surgeon, older surgeon behind me, and there was a rep, company rep. 
I was talking to the rep and the rep introduced me to the surgeon behind me. And he told him, said, Dr. Asley doesn't like screws. I said, uh, and the, the established surgeon said, oh, you're the gentleman that uh, raised that question about screws. Well, I totally understand and everybody's welcome to their opinion, but you're very wrong. I said, it's not about me. It's about the research. We have research that clearly say that these screws don't work. Maybe, just maybe they're trying to tell us something. He said, I know, I published those papers. Those are my patients. I'm like, yeah, what's your name? He told me his name and uh, I'm not gonna mention him. And he's right. He was the fifth author. I had all the papers in my hand. He was the fifth author on the second study that I had. I said, well, let's read your paper. I opened his paper. His name is up there. He said, that's, that's me. That's me. I'm like, okay, let's read your paper. The last sentence said, word for word, this. I've memorized it. Based on current evidence, we do not recommend routine use of pedicle screw in spinal fusions. He looked at it. He looked at it and said, no, that's wrong. And he walked away. So, yeah. Oh, so that's, what I'm that's what I'm dealing with. Yes. Okay. That's wow. what I'm dealing with. Somehow... Because it's been imprinted in our brain as orthopedic surgeons that the solution to any problem is a screw. Solution to any problem is a screw. It's been imprinted in our brain. That's why, you know, they, they are convinced that no evidence is going to change their mind. Screw is it. And, and I tell them, I said, that mentality that you have, that you say screw is it, and the best is going to get, that means we're stuck in a dead end. That means we're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> we are, not only does it work, but at the same time, we're not going to go anywhere. You don't want to accept anything new. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, and then, and then I'll tell you something else. So I've talked to lots of leaders of the field. They are aware that these papers have been published that say, but this is their attitude. Oh, yeah, we know. We understand that we have not been able to show with research that the screws work. But we know that they work and we will show it in the future. I'm like, wait a minute. That's a, that's a definition of insanity. You want to do the same experiment over and over and hoping that one of them will show that it works? I mean, that's just crazy. And I tell him, I said, every time you fail to show that these screws work, you've just shown that it didn't work. These are not two independent events. This is the same event. If you fail to show that it works, you just show that it didn't work. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's crazy. It's just, you know, that's why, you know, people might say, well, why don't you bring it with your leaders? I have, I have ambushed them. I have, uh, you know, I've chased after them. A couple of them, they're like, cussed me out. You know, I, it's, it's beyond belief. It's beyond belief. And it's very simple. And uh, let me tell you this. It's very simple. Motion of the vertebral bone, motion of the backbone is a rotational motion. A vertebrae on top of the other vertebrae doesn't slide back and forth, doesn't go up and down. It rotates. Well, guess what? That means that if there's a screw that's parallel to the ground, has to stop that motion, the mode of failure for the screw is toggled. You know, the two ways that screw fails is to pull out and toggle. So vertebrae is not moving forward and backward. So it's not pull out. It's the toggle. I was six years old when I 
realize if you want to take a screw out, you don't yank on it. You toggle and it'll come out. I was six years old. So you tell a screw to do something that's not made for. Then you give it nothing but the spongy bone. And when the papers come back and say it doesn't work, you don't want to believe it. I, I, I'm baffled. I just, I just don't know. Oh my goodness. I don't know what to do. Oh my goodness. Well, I think right, the next right. thing is, is how do we, how do we, I mean, this, obviously my podcast is all about education and helping to educate the consumer at this point, because now the more that people know, the more that they can be educated as to what they're getting into and, and well, option. Right. My goal is that this is your body. This is what we're doing to you. You have to complain. I, I want patients to come up and say, this, this, this is not right. <laughs> you cannot, you know, because my, my wife didn't want me to write this book. My wife is very scared. Uh, my wife is like, you have a great practice. You have a good life. You're just going to ruin it. I'm like, once I find this out, I can't sleep. I can't. I have to do this. I, I, I mean, my life is already, if it's going to be ruined, it's already ruined. <laughs> you know, uh, good night's sleep is a very valuable thing in this life, you know, and, and I've already lost it. So, so I had to do this. And once I found this out, you know, I, I had to bring it to attention. It's just what we're doing is unethical at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want patients to understand so they can at least call you know, call your representatives, call, you know, call newspapers, tell them that, hey, there's this guy that is saying this stuff that, you know, there's something going on in spine surgery that is not right. Mm -hmm. And bring up the awareness. You know, I, 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 I have asked myself for three years, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right path? Am I missing something? And it always comes down to the same answer. How do you explain a unfinished uh, preliminary report as the most referenced paper in your entire specialty. How do you explain that? You can't. You, we can't. We can't have a specialty like this. Uh, this is crazy. That's right. It, it it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing, and and it's it's for me. I mean, I have seen firsthand some patients, you know, that are dealing with this issue right now, and especially women who are losing bone density. And now we've got the bones moving and we look at DEXAs and we're like, yes, definitely osteopenia, osteoporosis. And that's probably why we're now getting issues, not to mention all the little ligaments, the my, you know, little tiny ligaments that are around the spine too. Um, right. What kind of things, and, and I think maybe this might help some folks to kind of identify, because I'm not sure a hundred percent how many people know that they actually have had a type of procedure that has screws you know I, you know if how much fusion if they had a fusion they had the screws following i mean that's the standard of care that's what we do you know okay. every time you, you know, because and of course that's one of the biggest questions and most frequent questions people ask me are you using the screws absolutely every time i do the fusion to this day i put the screws in why because this is standard of care if, I, if something happens to the patient, they're not better, they go to the next surgeon. That's the person the surgeon's going to say, ah, oh, he didn't use the screws. That's mm -hmm. why he, he, you know, he, he, he botched it. You know? So I am, I'm not going to practice my own medicine. I'm going to do whatever is the standard of care, but I'm, gonna, I'm trying to change the standard of care. Mm -hmm. it's, right. It makes 
it makes sense to to work to try to change the standard of care. And I think if folks can, you know, those of you guys who are listening right now, if you've had a fusion, if you know for sure that you have pedicle screws in, this is, and you have pain, you don't, you know, and not even that, you're just concerned. I, I think it's, I think it's valuable information here to put out there, especially because of like you're mentioning the torque and the the motion. If someone has had spinal surgery and they've been guaranteed, like not guaranteed, no one's going to guarantee that, but hey, you can go back and ski. Hey, you can go back and play basketball or whatever it is that your sport may be. If you're starting to realize that that's not so much the case and you're having more pain, it's time to to look into what the screws might be doing. Correct. And, and you, know, you know what's the amazing part? I go to conferences twice a year. So this has been happening since 2002 when I finished my practice. I mean, I was not going there as a resident. As a resident, you don't have time to go to these conferences. But, I, but I've been going. So every time I go to conferences for the last two decades, every time they talk about the screws from 2002, they got up and said, oh, yeah, there's plenty of, there's plenty of evidence that shows screws work. Then the next guy gets up and said, oh, yeah, there's a plenty of evidence that shows the screws work. So when I talked, raised this question in 2016 with one of the surgeons, he said, what are you talking about? We showed a long time ago these screws work great. I was like, no, we never did. So what I'm saying is that somehow in one of these meetings, somebody got up and say there was a plenty of evidence that these screws work. And that became a rumor that got a life of its own. And then so everybody that goes to these conferences, they trust the guy who gets up on the podium and says, oh, there's plenty of it. So throughout the last two decades, we somehow made, literally made, have made ourselves believe that there's plenty of evidence that these screws work. And, but if you go look at it, it doesn't ex- exist. <laughs> it's uh, sad. It's really bad. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. And it, you know, yeah. it's, and, and, and you know, and I tell people, I said, and what we do in America permeates to the rest of the world. So we just didn't fail our people. We failed the whole world. I mean, they use these screws in the entire world. This is a, Stand of care. <laughs> oh right. my goodness, Doctor Asley, right. you have right. opened up a lot of questions for me for like I'm, five more podcasts. <laughs> and, and and you know what? And, and and I've thought about this quite a bit. Trust me, am I opening up old wounds? Because world of spine surgery went through a real trauma in 1990s because of these screws. A lot of doctors got sued. A lot of doctors end up in, actually, there was an investigation by the United States Senate, you know, which nothing happened. So am I opening up the old wounds? And they always come back to the same answer. There was a reason that there was a problem, that there were all those wounds in 1990s. And we did nothing about it. We put it under the rug. Hmm. And the problems didn't go away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, you know, I've been through this so much that it's just, it's, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm really embarrassed. I mean, this is, you know, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is just, this is so bad. I mean, so crazy. 
uh, that when I tell people, they just don't believe me. And when I show them, when I show them, say, Google Zedablic Spine Fusion. And that study comes out. And you see, it says, preliminary results, 1993, referenced by 1,122 articles. That right there, that just one snapshot, that right there, people's jaw drops. It's baffling. It's baffling. Well, let's let's get folks over to getting your book so that we can we can educate folks and and start getting some 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 positive correct turn and ask for change. Mm -hmm. Right. And ask for change. Right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So corporate spinebook.com. And of course, I know I'm gonna get questions. Uh, for where do folks find you at your actual practice too? Because sure. I definitely want to give you a plug in that case because you have a lot of integrity. I like how the you ask questions. Where can folks find you at your practice? I practice in Sacramento, California. Um, I have one office. I used to have few, but now I've settled to one office. And this is where I practice. You know, I take PPOs. You know, if you have a PPO, you can come in. Uh, we can see you and um, and yeah well thanks but more than anything what I want from you and do myself a favor and do yourself a favor and spread the word yeah. uh, I tell people I said it's your duty to read this book not only that it's your duty to let whoever you know to read this book this just can't go on yeah yeah no I absolutely agree I absolutely agree and anyone that's in my profession of course too and folks who see when surgery does not work out all of us know that there's something you know things could be improved and so absolutely all right guys we'll head over to drjkrausnd.com look at the podcast notes and corporate spinebook.com is what you want to be going after dr ardavan asley thank you so much for for all you. of your information it's you are doing a good service it is a good thing and i am happy to spread the word thank you thank you hey fellow health junkie thanks for listening to the health fix podcast if you enjoyed tuning in please help support me to get the word out about the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review, and just get that word out. Thanks again for listening.